As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time, The Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Welcome to the Total Soccer Show Euro 2020 coverage, day five. It's a big test in Bucharest for Cristiano and the rest, but it went a bit Game of Thrones for the battling hungry, who much like the TV show, fell apart towards the end. Meanwhile in Munich, Big Ben's tried to turn the clock back as France struck a timely victory over Germany. Pun's over, my name's Ryan Bailey. Joining me today, we have a man who can definitely tell us the difference between... Salai, Zalai, and Salai in the Hungry team is Taylor Rockwell. Uh, I can try. I wrote it down a whole bunch of different ways, and I forget who did the previewing of Hungary. I think it might have been Graham. I did consider messaging Graham during the game, but I think I had already sent like four group messages at that point. It felt like a bit too much. So I am hoping that we get to the bottom of that one at some point on this show. Four silvers on the Portugal team. It's like some sort of pirate movie going on over there. Crazy stuff. (laughs) Crazy stuff, Taylor. Joining us, we have a man who has never, to my knowledge, bitten Paul Pogba. It's Graham Rubbham. To your knowledge, yeah. (laughs) I've got some stories for you. (laughs) Oh, I'd love to hear about those later on. We'll keep the powder dry on that one, Graham. That sounds very interesting. Thank you for joining us today, Graham. And also we have joining us a man who may or may not have parachuted his way into the Alliance Arena today. Joe Lowry, can you confirm? That was me, absolutely. I, I somehow managed to get back home to Arizona to record this podcast with you guys. That's how committed I am. Well, that jetpack thing on your back was, you know, it, it must have taken you over the it Atlantic, helps. I assume. Sure, sure. That yeah, jetpack yeah. You thing. You filled up which, with enough gas. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it almost, it was, that was a very dangerous event, to be honest, because it was it a Greenpeace protester, I think yeah. it was. It was, it was almost funnier because it was Greenpeace. Like, peace, peace. Oh, we're going to smash into the crowd, <laughs> take out at least three people. <laughs> it could have been so, peaceful so much now. worse. It could have been so much worse than it was. Let's be honest. There, that was a that was a we we avoided a nightmare there. And um, did it it get caught up in the like the spider cam thing as well? Yeah. Oh, 
Nothing went right at all. Nothing. It reminded right. me, you know, when like it, I'm sure you all have had at least one unfortunate incident in your life when you weren't maybe as coordinated as you wanted, and you have to kind of play it off with the laughter of like, ha ha ha, I meant to do that, ha ha ha, wasn't that funny? And I would love to, for a skydiver to try to pull that one off after parachuting into a crowd, like breaking the camera line, almost hitting the the, <laughs> uh, the fans, and then landing and be like, right, everybody, that was a joke. We all enjoyed that, right? Please don't arrest me and take me away forever. But I feel like maybe he did. Yeah, not quite one you can brush it off and style it out, I would suggest, uh, <laughs> landing in the middle of the stadium. But hey, he got the publicity he required, so True. fully for him. All right, gents, why don't we get straight to it? Let's satisfy our appetites, first hungry pun, with Hungary against Portugal. Uh, Portugal winning 3-0 uh, here. 60,000 fans in Budapest, the closest we've got to seeing sort of normal scenes of soccer haven't seen 60,000 hungry fans in one place since Coachella ran out of vegan tacos, personally, but uh, <laughs> it was very nice nice to see the stadium full up, regardless of who was there, how many Orbans of different kinds were there. The less said about that, the better. Taylor, your thoughts on this game? Uh, why don't we start with Hungary? What did you think about the way they set up? It seemed like uh, they didn't quite deserve the scoreline they ended up with. Yeah, I think that's probably fair. I think they fought very, very hard. I think we saw what happens when you have a full stadium of supporters for the first time in a very long time. It can definitely elevate the energy, if not the overall performance. Because I thought they looked good, certainly in defense. I thought they had some bright counterattacking moments intermittently. But I think overall they weren't offering enough to really make Portugal that uncomfortable from a defensive side. Uh, But I thought the way they kind of fought for everything, they never gave up. They battled for every single loose ball uh, and really made it difficult for Portugal, who are notoriously slow starters, and we'll talk about that a little bit later on, I'm assuming at least. But I thought for Hungary to go at this the way they did, yeah, I think for it to finish 3-0 feels a little bit unfair. 1-0 probably would have been uh, a a fair reflection, but, you know, that's the way it goes. Joe, any thoughts on how Hungary set up? It was a 3-4-3, seemed to be defending really well for the most part. What went wrong in those last 10 minutes? Yeah, so I saw it close to that 3-4-3. I saw it in more of a 5-3-2 as they sat deeper into their own half, really compressing space. There have been a few different teams in this tournament so far that have used that 5-3-2 defensive block. Finland was one of them. There have been a couple others as well. I thought Hungary, though, of all the teams we've seen use that shape so far, did the best job of shifting side to side and not, not getting exposed in those pockets on the outside of central midfield. When you only have three central midfielders to cover that the width of the field, then you can be exposed at times, and it's happened to other teams in this tournament. It didn't happen so much to Hungary. Part of that, I think, is because Portugal didn't have their best attacking performance. But at the end of this game, Ryan, you're you're smart to pinpoint that because I think Hungary was very, very good until right around the 84th minute. It's that goal from Rafael Guerrero. Portugal are in possession in the attacking half, and it's one little defensive miscommunication between uh, Hungary's left center back, their center center back, and then Negro, who would come off the bench, their, their center midfielder. So it's Orban, Botka, and, and Nego, excuse me. And, and it, they don't track Rafa Silva, who's a player that Fernando Santos put on in the second half. They don't track him. And that one mistake opens up the field. It allows Portugal to play through their back line. And then the ball goes over to Guerrero, and he scores after a deflection and all that good stuff. But it, it really was that one defensive miscue that lost this game for Hungary, and, the, and then the floodgates opened after that. Joe, if you don't mind me asking, like, where are you on the idea that maybe it was Hungary 
getting tired and making some mistakes. But also, I'm inclined to say that it was also Portugal doing some very smart things and kind of keeping up the pressure, keeping up the harassment. And sort of, I think other teams, I said this on Twitter, and we can have this have this debate whenever, but I, I feel like... like other teams would have just been like, you know what, nil-nil is an okay way to start this one. We'll take the point. We'll kind of push for a win in the next game or the game after that, and that'll be enough to get us through. And Portugal, I think, persisting and trying to make things happen and not taking their foot off the gas and making it even more uncomfortable for a fatigued, hungry team, to me, that is also what made the difference, not necessarily just hungry kind of uh, easing off at the very end. Well, and I guess the way I look at it is I don't necessarily know if Portugal had their foot on the gas intentionally. I think Hungary put their foot on the gas. I think Hungary put (laughs) Portugal's foot on the gas because, yeah, the game opened up a little bit 10 minutes into the second half and Hungary started to get forward more. But they were never going to be the ball-dominant team in this game. That was always going to be on Portugal. So, I mean, maybe maybe mm. there's credit to be given there. And it is a good attacking moment from Portugal. And they had good other attacking moments, especially later on in this game. But, but really, they were always going to have to do something. And they could have just passed the ball around and gone for a nil-nil draw. Yeah, but if you have the ball, you might as well use it and try to create something and use possession and attacking as your defensive mechanism. And I think that's what Portugal did in this game. And I guess I'm, I'm hesitant to give them so much credit for it, even though they do, they do take advantage of that mistake quite well. Graham, you previewed um, Hungary for us, and you did say that they weren't the whipping boys here. They weren't here to make up the numbers. I think they did, uh, despite the score, on account for themselves pretty well. What stood out for you? Yeah, I mean, I, I think um, the scoreline does flatter Portugal um, a little too too much in, in, in this game. And I said without, um, in my preview, I said without Sobosly, who's obviously the, the RB Leipzig, former Red Bull Salzburg attacking midfielder, who is the player that they've pretty much built their team around, particularly in a, in a creative and attacking sense. He is injured for this tournament. And so without him, I, I always feared that Hungary would be a little bit one-dimensional in, 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 in an attacking sense anyway. I think their defensive organisation was pretty good, but it really felt like they, that they were they were kind of um, demanding a lot of Salai, the, the big kind of tall, lanky number nine, um, in, in attack to, to, to play off him and make something happen and get them up the pitch. And really that was quite difficult when Portugal set up with Danilo and William Car- Carvajal as, as the, the midfield platform, which was a very conservative midfield platform. And actually, I, I felt Portugal stuck with that for way too long. It was, yeah. it was until the... The 80th minute that uh, Renato Sanchez comes off comes off the bench for one of those two those two and, and uh, Fernando Santos breaks up that midfield platform and all of a sudden there's people breaking through lines of transition and Renato Sanchez making things happen and Rafa Silva's making things happen so I do feel in that sense Portugal got away with one a little bit in that they only gave themselves 10 minutes of a 90 minute match to actually impose their own game on Hungary um, but I think this was pretty much what I expected of Hungary I, I, I thought. They they played the occasion well. I think that we all saw what the the, the kind of intangible impact of a sixty thousand crowd can have <laughs> on yeah. a team. I really felt like there was an intensity in Hungary and there, just a, a focus that might not have been there in an empty stadium. Um, as a Scot, I was a little bit jealous of that. I wondered if a 50,000 Hamden might have made the difference for us against Czech Republic, but maybe not. We were really really bad. Um, so yeah, it was it was kind of what I expected from Hungary. 
Um, yeah, I don't think a full hand and part would have made a difference for you, Graham. I'll just add that in there. But I, I did enjoy um, much of what this Hungary team did, and it was good to see the, the, the fans full in the stadium. Uh, I, I did enjoy Adam Zalai, the number nine Zalai, uh, in, in this game. Mm. He seemed to be having like a shouting contest with Ruben Dias throughout the thing, which was really yep. enjoyable to see when they were... I'm not sure what they were saying. It didn't seem polite. Um, and uh, <laughs> and w- Willie Orban, who sounds like he should be a country music singer with that kind of name, but it's very enjoyable. He was... Was he... Joe, was he doing like a David Alaba getting all over the place? He seemed to be the furthest forward player a few times. Uh, A little bit. And then both Orban and then Salai, the center back, left center back, uh, they were both making some marauding runs forward, which you already know I'm here for. I love that from Hungary. They were more aggressive in moments than I thought they were going to be. Sometimes the center backs would get forward. Sometimes, especially in the second half, they would send runners forward. And it looked like they might have enough to actually get that go-ahead goal to to use that term that we've Yay. not coined but been using they had they had a chance or two to pull ahead and make it 1-0 and it didn't happen for them and it was unfortunate but yeah the center backs getting forward was awesome if only scotland had a center back who could do do that don't Graham. don't don't <laughs> this is it's too this wrong. is where I am, Graham. Graham, what if Hampton Park had been full of Kieran Tierney clones and you could have brought in as many as you needed? Would yeah. it have made a difference then? Yeah, all carrying uh, Tesco plastic bags, like what he carries into to Arsenal training. Uh, <laughs> he does. Yeah, he does. <laughs> All right, well, let's turn our attention, Taylor, to Portugal. It seems, as we've mm-hmm. hinted at here, the narrative is that the, the, the turning point was the last 10 minutes. It seemed to be that mm-hmm. substitution of, with Renato Sanchez coming on, switching to one holding player with Pereira in the middle seemed to make the difference for them. Yeah, I, I think I think it did. And I think that's where I am maybe... I think everything you all have said about Portugal and the kind of the lateness of the changes and how they could have done more and how... Potentially, Hungary could have done more as well and caused more problems. I think that's all fair. I think the reason why I am maybe more inclined to give them credit is because I was looking back at their historical results. And I know the commentators talked about this a little bit in this game, but I wanted to stress it again. Going back to 2016, the tournament they won, it is worth noting that they won uh, exactly one game in regulation of the whole tournament. Uh, they didn't win a game in the group stage. They drew all three. They went through as the third of fourth third place teams. Uh, they were not like that strong. And then they draw. Uh, they go to extra time. They win on penalties. They find their way to, to the end, uh, to the final. But the same thing with the World Cup. They draw, I think, two of their three group stage games. They're out in the first knockout round. And it's a team that don't always, I think, elevate. They don't always raise their game. Sometimes they do. I think when the opponent is doing the same thing, that's why one of those draws was the 3-3 with Spain. Weirdly, one of their draws in the Euros was the final group stage game, a 3-3 draw with Hungary. Mm. So I think there are times when they can do that, but it seems to often be when they absolutely have to, backs against the wall, need to get a result or need to start on the right foot. And here, it felt to me like they did what we sort of expected them to do starting a tournament, but then were able to turn it on, were able to kind of keep going, made smart substitutions, in my opinion, and and push through to find a win. And then it becomes a really comprehensive win that against a team that were as defensive as Hungary, I would argue that if you're coming away from this one with Ronaldo getting a brace and 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 you just have like like a decent number of attacks near the end, and I think you have more confidence coming out of it than you would have certainly with a nil-nil draw, I think it's a really strong performance from Portugal overall. Yeah, we do need to mention Ronaldo um, who make, made history becoming the biggest scorer in the European Championships. With, he's now got 11 goals in the tournament. It's, that was his 106th international goal. His second one was uh, certainly an impressive performance by those metrics. And that goal, Graham, that goal um, from an open play with 33 passes leading towards it, that was nice, wasn't it? 
Yeah, yeah, it was, and it, it almost came out of the out of the blue in the way that that wasn't how Portugal were playing for eighty yeah. minutes of the match, and and so um, just going back to my previous point, the only I I actually thought. Um, the way that Portugal set up initially and then reacted later in the match was was fantastic. I just worry about them making changes that late against better teams mm. and only giving themselves 10, 15 minutes to impose their own game on, on other teams. But yeah, it was it was a, a wonderful goal. Um, and I, d- I do wonder how how many lessons Fernando Santos will, will learn from this game and whether we'll see... I thought Jota had a, a really poor game and I, I wonder if maybe he, he won't start the next game against Germany, is it? Portugal face Germany next, I think. Um, so I think he might be a casualty. I, I, I thought, I, I don't think they'll play that. Well, maybe they will start that, that against Germany. Maybe they will start that Willem Carvalho, Danilo, Pereira midfield partnership. But I, I think he might be a bit quicker to change it up if it's not working. But yeah, Ronaldo, Ronaldo did the job, didn't he? And he's really trying to make that celebration work, even after all these years. <laughs> In front of sixty thousand angry Hungarians as well, it was quite quite a, quite a move. Uh, but yeah, yeah, Portugal do play Germany on Saturday in Munich. So that's definitely going to be a slightly elevated challenge, Joe. It seemed to me that they were quite nervous at the start. Maybe it's just playing in front of fans for the first time in a long time. Certainly that many fans, but they were quite sloppy. I, I was I was noting in the first half certainly quite a few missed passes and sloppiness. I wouldn't have expected of an organised Portugal team. I thought they were sloppy and I thought they were slow with the ball. They had a ton of the ball because, like I said earlier, I think Hungary put Portugal's foot on the gas for them. They had so much time in possession, but they didn't really do a whole lot with that possession. They created some chances. I'm not saying that they didn't do anything with the ball, but it was sluggish. They they didn't use the ball to break through the center of Hungary's block. It was a lot of U-shaped ball circulation. The ball goes across the back, then it goes up one wing, then it goes back across the back line, then it goes up the other wing. They struggled to break through in the middle, and that's a problem when you're facing a compact, well-disciplined defensive block if you want to create a lot of attacking chances. The two things that I think Portugal did well in this game, first, uh, offensively, I thought they did well with runners in behind. That was really their only main, only effective attacking method as far as I could tell. It would be Ronaldo making a run in behind or, or Bruno Fernandes making that run in behind. Diogo Jota, Semedo. I mean, there were effective moves. Bernardo Silva as well. Making runs into the 20, 25 yards behind Hungary's line of three or line of five. I thought that was effective from Portugal. And I also thought their high pressing was effective. Hungary's not mm. a team that you expect to burn you in buildup, and, and they didn't. But Portugal used a 4-4-2 diamond. They rotated their possession shape into a different high-pressing shape, and I, I thought they did a good job with that. My, I guess my overarching takeaway from Portugal in this game, not effective in possession. It's impressive that they got this result, uh, and I think that's, that's huge. I like the result much more than I like the performance from Portugal, but I do think these three points are so huge, and Portugal's style and, and their strengths, not being in possession, more so being with the skill of their individual players and, and getting out in transition and pressing a little bit, I think we're actually going to see those better against Germany than we did in this game because Germany actually plays a little bit more than Hungary did, and I, I think Portugal could be better suited for a game that is a little bit more end-to-end. Um, one more note on this game, gents. A public statement made by Taylor Rockwell on Twitter.com. That was as impressive a victory for Portugal as Italy's was over Turkey, in my opinion. They could easily have accepted a draw and played the next uh, for the win next time, but pushed on in front of their hostile crowd since uh, for the first time since early 2020. Big win and discipline too. Now, I kind of agree with that in the sense that... Um, 
Hungary were more of an opponent than Turkey were. Not that Italy were, uh, that Portugal were better than Italy, but the, in, in terms of the opposition, Joe, you thought Portugal were absolutely wonderful and the best team in this tournament, right? <laughs> no, and I, Taylor, I agree with that tweet in terms of the the field conditions, right? In terms of the atmosphere and all that stuff. I don't want your that's pity, a, that's Joe. Impressive. I don't want your pity. That's, <laughs> I, I'm here for Portugal doing doing that stuff. Ryan, I'm not as much here for saying that Portugal should get credit because Hungary were better than Turkey. Shouldn't we ding Portugal because they let Hungary be better than Turkey? I mean, Italy went out there and smothered Turkey with gravy. No, uh, I hate myself. That, that. works. Um, they, they, they went out and they, they pinned Turkey so deep and created attacking chances in the opening game of this tournament. Portugal pinned Hungary kind of deep and still looked vulnerable in transition in moments and didn't really create that many chances until the last 10 minutes. I just have a hard time taking this victory from from Portugal, at least from an on-field standpoint, as being more impressive than that Italy one. But I'm I'm happy to be overruled on that. That's totally fine. Taylor, a moment to defend yourself. Yeah, I mean, I I think one thing that's worth noting, aside from the uh, playing in front of a packed stadium, which I do think would be a little bit of a jarring experience if you haven't had that forever, and especially that particular Hungary crowd feeling like they were probably not making it the most pleasant for Portugal. But I think the thing that maybe I I haven't quite hit hit on yet is just the idea that I'm not sure Portugal are supposed to be a pretty team. I don't think that's how they play. It's certainly not how they won the Euros. And so I, I think there's a practicality to Fernando Santos. I think there is a, Joe, as you said, a reliance on the individuals, and he has a ton of individual talents to make things happen and to kind of back them to get a result in regulation, but if not in extra time and if not in penalties. And I think they're a very practical tournament knockout sort of team uh, from that standpoint and that they do the kind of the basic stuff very well. uh, And then they are capable of some individual flair and some great team attacking plays. So I think that's where I'm coming from with like, not only did they do sort of what I expected them to do, but then they did have those moments where they got the goals, where they played well. And there was that reminder of like, oh, right, they've got a ton of world-class talent if they want to play that way. And you could knock them for not just playing that way from the start because they have that talent. But for me, there's an idea of if you want to make it far in a tournament, you can't always be the prettiest. Sometimes you've got to be the most practical. That's good stuff from you, gentlemen. Thank you very much. That was Hungary against Portugal. Uh, Portugal top of Group F, the group of death as we speak. France hot on their heels. We'll hear more about their encounter with Germany after these very important messages. Do listen. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. 
Total Soccer Show, we have returned. We have seen all teams play in this tournament now, the last of which was, of course, the French and the Germans who battled it out in Munich on Tuesday. Uh, it was at the German Football Arena, if you consult UEFA uh, and, and their website, <laughs> because uh, the... Per, the, the, the company that sponsored that uh, that arena are not an approved sponsor. German Football Arena. Generic enough for you? Thank you very much, UEFA. <laughs> um, 14 of the 22 players on show, Graham, have won the World Cup. 14 of the 22 starters, I should say. Um, the first half of this one, I'll be I'll, I'll, full disclosure here, I, I didn't manage to catch most of the second half because life got in the way, unfortunately. But from what I saw and from the first half, it was a pretty high caliber entertaining game yeah absolutely it lived up to the the billing in terms of maybe maybe not so much in terms of of pure drama i've watched more dramatic games and even in this tournament but certainly this season but just in terms of getting the sense that what you're watching is very high quality and um, everything was being done quite well and that that the, the, there were you were watching good players who basically know how to carry out um instructions i, I did think france carried out those instructions better than than Germany did. Um, I thought in places this was very much Deschamps' ball, um, defending on the edge of, 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 particularly in the second half, but maybe not so much the defending, but playing on the edge of their own their own box and then leaving so much space to um, to counter-attack into, which is ideal for a, a certain Kylian Mbappe, who mm. uh, I think very nearly... Um, killed uh, Mats Hummels in the second half with a, by making up about 50 yards on him and then Mats Hummels just about prods the ball away to, to prevent him having a, a free shot on goal but I, I personally thought this was almost as impressive a performance from France as we've seen in this tournament so far. Very good stuff from Kylian Mbappe. And yeah, it's almost as if Matt Hummels had something to make up for that he did in the first half when he was making that uh, run to close <laughs> down Kylian Mbappe. Um, Joe, were we expecting a 4-3-3 from France? What did you make up of the way they set up? I wasn't expecting that shape. It was an interesting tactical wrinkle from Deschamps. I, I think we saw more of a 4-3-3 than we'd seen, at least recently, than I'd seen from France. Um, you have Anton Griezmann playing further shaded towards out that shaded out towards that right side and then you have Mbappe on the left and Benzema as the nine and then you have the three central midfielders behind them it was a, it was a it was a peculiar setup from France because I thought that 4-3-3 shape in the first half not so much in the second half like Graham mentioned in the first half it left them really exposed through the middle because they had the front three wide and Griezmann was shadowing Tony Kroos kind of and sometimes Pogba was stepping forward and I thought that was a, a clever idea from Deschamps I guess to limit Ryan's theorem about about Tony Kroos if you don't let him get on the ball then maybe you're not as damaged but Germany just Joe. kept yeah, but I mean, it applies to any team that Tony Cross is on, right? I mean, can sure. we can we apply it here, Ryan? Okay, cool. Kind of. I mean, <laughs> France just had these open gaps in their 4-3-3 that Germany played through over and over again in the first half. And and then in the second half, they went more defensive and, and dropped Griezmann down almost into a line of four. And sometimes Mbappe would drop down as well. And that looked like the France team that won the 2018 World Cup much more than that 4-3-3 shape did in the first half. Joe, I think I, I, I got to disagree with you a little bit here, uh, and I'm interested to hear your thoughts, because for me, I saw a lot of the stuff that did work for them in 2018 from the start of the game. I saw the one that like I remember vividly being a thing that was interesting to me was in that 2018 World Cup, they were in more of a 4-2-3-1, and it would be Pogba as the right-sided central midfielder 
almost moving to play right back, and that allowed then Blaise Matuidi to get forward, and that allowed the wide attacker to to go more central. And I saw them trying to do that here on a number of occasions. I would argue it's it's part of where the goal comes from, is him sort of battling on that right-hand side and having the technical ability, but also the physical strength to hold off two players, but uh, then play a perfect pass in. So I saw those little sequences that it felt like were familiar from the 2018 World Cup, where I am where I am sort of confused and would love to hear more from you is the idea that Germany played through that time and time again. Because what I felt was more that we saw Germany going direct or going down the channels more often. And they get free kicks, they get some opportunities, but I don't really remember feeling like France were in that much trouble, at least in the first half. So may- maybe I'm wrong. I could well be. I look forward to hearing you all uh, vehemently disagree. Well, no, I, no, Taylor, I don't disagree at all. I think there were sequences, and I went back through and watched, and I'm not, I'm not really suggesting anyone else go back through and do this, but I went back through and watched Germany's possession in the first half, really, and they did play a lot of those line-breaking balls into Kai Havertz, or, or even a shorter line-breaking ball uh, out of the back line for maybe Hummels into Gundogan, or, or, or someone in that midfield. They had a lot of those passes, and I think France was weak there, but as soon as Germany then tried to progress after that and, and really drive the ball into the final third, France locked things down. And, and part of that, I think, was Germany being a little slow and, and lacking ideas, lacking movement. But France then did the France thing of being congested and, and compact defensively. And so I saw Germany progressing the ball through that, that first area of the field really easily. And then after that, things got very, very challenging in the first half and in the second half, which is why I think even though they did create some chances just by sheer volume of the possession that they had, when you have the ball over and over again, something's going to happen. But it was a lot of crosses. It was a lot of low percentage chances from Germany that didn't really trouble France all that much. Graham, your thoughts on the French? Um, Big Ben's obviously returning, getting the ball in on the 85th minute, having it ruled out, though. What did you make of him? And also Paul Pogba, who the perception is that he's a different player in a French shirt. And, you know, there is evidence for that, Graham. <laughs> there is, but I think one of the biggest factor is, factors is he's, he's playing passes forward for Kylian Mbappe and not uh, <laughs> Daniel James, as Fair. he is uh, at Manchester United. Um, yeah, he's he's. I don't know whether this is a, and I thought this a lot during this game. I don't know whether this is a good or a, a bad quality. I guess you could see it from both sides. But Paul Pogba has just always struck me as a player who needs to play for a good team. Like he needs to have good teammates around him, and if you do that, he's a world class player. Um, and he's always been fantastic for France. Well, I'm glad you mentioned Benzema there because one of the things that, that struck me in this performance was the work rate of both Benzema and Antoine Griezmann in particular. This 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 was Atletico Madrid's Antoine Griezmann, maybe not so much in terms of his goal threat, but just the way that he was kind of bouncing around the pitch, high press and, and dropping into midfield. And I think this system from Deschamps doesn't really work without Griezmann doing that. And now they've added Benzema into the mix, who Benzema also does that for Real Madrid. And he's he's carried that into, maybe not to the same extent, because he's obviously a little bit older, but he, and he's also, you know, a centre forward rather than a Griezmann kind of drifts out wide and so on. But he he digs, digs in as well with, with a lot of defensive work. So I feel like um, we all spoke about how Benzema would give... France some additional cutting edge in this tournament and I feel like Deschamps is just going to use him as as another one of the the forwards he already had and and in the way he used those forwards he's just doubling down on on his approach so that was one of the things that that stood out to me was the work rate of of the front three 
and then obviously Mbappe with his his pace and and I just I just felt like France for a lot of the second half they were a they were a passing behind from scoring that second goal and we saw that obviously with the the two disallowed goals but even still I felt like I wanted them to play that pass more often in behind Hummels because there was just no way I thought Germany were we're, we're going to catch them. It's quite similar to, I, I remember saying that about PSG and some of the games they played in the Champions League, where I, I just think when you've got that asset, that physical asset of Mbappe's pace, maybe just maybe just put a ball in behind and, and see what he can do. And I feel like when they did that, he more often than not got on the end of it. Graham, I think I, I think I have an idea about what Germany were trying to do as to why that wasn't more effective. And it relates to Joshua Kimmich, who I thought when I previewed uh, Germany, or we talked about Germany, that they would maybe use him as that right wing back or as that right fullback. And I thought what they were trying to do today was have him advance pretty far up the field. I thought uh, Gosens on the left side didn't go as far forward as regularly. And so sometimes it was almost just a straight back four for Germany with Ginter sliding out to the right. And I think the idea was that Kimmich would push on and basically force Hernandez back. Uh, and then even if Mbappe doesn't track back to defend, if you're Germany and you're kind of pushing forward, if you're building possession, which is what I think they wanted to do, and you've forced the left back back, you've maybe brought Antoine Griezmann back to help out in defense, then there's a huge gap to killing Mbappe. And so if France do win the ball... They don't really have a, a consistent link through the middle. They have to go really, really long. They have to go from like their own 18 or from maybe 20 or 30 yards from their own goal and hit that long ball over the top. And it's never going to be as effective. And I think Germany did okay with that for most of the game. But almost every single time there would be a gap or somebody unmarked in the middle or there would be like a deflected pass that went to a French player further up the field, that ball was on. And it shows the sort of just the difficulty of playing against Kylian Mbappe, that you can game plan <laughs> and have everything locked down, but one slip-up, one tiny mistake, and he will burn you for it. And he can do that, <laughs> and you're absolutely right. I think that ball in behind, if you can get it from a little bit further up the pitch, is always going to be an issue. Joe, your thoughts on Germany's shape? Um, I, I think I was surprised to see Joshua Kimmich wide right, and, and maybe his game was limited a little bit by getting that early booking as well. Yeah, they were in this 3-4-3 shape that, that was flexible at times with Thomas Muller and Kai Havertz dropping and rotating into different spaces. Then in the second half, we did see Kimmich move inside a little bit, but not as much as I, I guess I was hoping to see him in that space because he's fun to watch on the ball when he's, when he's able to break lines in central areas. But man, I can't help but think that Germany needed... Kimmich centrally to defend against Pogba, right? Because he was the the big threat in midfield for France. And so if you have Kimmich a little bit more inside, maybe he can do more of the defensive dirty work than Tony Kroos or, or Gundogan can. But I mean, it, it was still a fairly logical shape from Germany. I don't think, man, I think the front three could have been a little bit more effective. Gnabry, he's got this ten, like tenacious speed to him, right? And he's got that, that quickness that he can get him behind, hugely technical as well. But I felt like I saw him dropping in more than I saw him breaking, breaking behind France's, France's back line. And it felt like, man, that could have been an area that Timo Werner even could have come off the bench and done. Ryan, hold your, hold your gasp, hold your shutter. <laughs> I, I think there was room for France to, to create chances, and they did do some of that stuff. But it, it was challenging because when you play France, they lock things down very well deeper in their own half. And, and that's kind of been their brand for a little while now. And then they go out and do some fun things on the break and, and some fun things and little possession moments. This game was, it was a battle, Ryan. It really was. Why would I complain about Timo Werner, Joe, and I could complain about Kevin Folland? <laughs> You're right. You're right, Ryan. Oh, poor Kevin Folland. I think, he, did he, 
he had the two like final giveaways for Germany at the very end of the game, right? It, it was not the strongest performance from him coming on as a substitute. He was not the hero <laughs> that maybe some had hoped he would be. <laughs> Perhaps not, yeah. Um, so maybe my last question about this game, gents, is did we learn, what did we learn about these teams? Have we learned uh, in Joachim Lowe's, uh, Love's, um final outing as journey manager, have we learned much about what he's going to do at this tournament, perhaps, Taylor? Um, yeah, I think go out, not a champion, would be my guess. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I thought, I agree with Joe, that I thought like the defensive game plan made a lot of sense. Mm. I messaged you all, I think in the first half, maybe at halftime, asking wouldn't it make more sense if maybe, not to, he obviously knows way more than I will ever know about soccer, does Yogi Lowe, but to me it did make more sense to have Yoshio Kimmich come central to put on Leroy Sané, maybe for Kai Havertz, let Thomas Muller be the link up, and then just use the speed of Gnabry and Sané to cause France a ton of problems because there were, like, Little reminders to me of the way or of the criticisms of Jose Mourinho that he sets his team up to defend and to counter and it sort of is and then we'll put world-class players up top and we'll counter and they'll score because they're world-class players and there's not always a ton of thought to the attacking strategy and that is sort of what I felt like with Germany today that they put a ton of effort into how do we limit what France want to do and and like shut down some of their more uh, threatening attacking players and then we'll get the ball and we'll possess and we'll sort of slow the game down to the tempo that we want to play and then we'll score a goal like it didn't <laughs> seem like there were there was that next plan that you need and, and I definitely have some some concerns if I am Germany uh, and I think maybe that's why we saw Antonio Rudiger try to uh, bite Paul Pogba or, or just straight up bite Paul Pogba maybe he also was so nervous that he had to sink his teeth into something my, my biggest concern with Germany is that Yogi Lowe is still smelling his fingers after they've been in <laughs> dubious places. Did that happen what? again? I missed it. Yes. Why will oh, that man no. not stop? Oh, God. Why do they keep cutting to him? Don't they know I mean, by we, now? It's not going to be good. We didn't see where the, the fingers in this instance had been, but we can all guess. We can all guess, <laughs> Yogi. He had some uh, buffalo but, wings down there, right, Graham? He's just licking the sauce <laughs> off. Dude, yeah, yeah, that's it. <laughs> I don't think you want buffalo wing sauce down there. I don't think that would go very well. Graham, I, I have a question for you. Who do you think is more annoyed with their teammate? Are Portugal players more annoyed with Diego, uh, Diego Jota, or are French players more annoyed with Adrian Rabiot? Um, Good question. Rabiot just feels like it's easier to get annoyed at him. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Graham, that is the correct answer. There is actually a correct answer, and that was it. So well done, sir. Well done. Thank you. Excellent stuff. On that note, we're going to take a very quick break. When we come back, we're going to look at uh, what we've learned from the first round of games from all these teams and have a little look towards Wednesday's games too. Back shortly. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach, well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. 
From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. Total Soccer Show, we have returned. We have seen every team at Euro 2020 in action now. Joe, I come to you first. What have we learned about the teams we've seen so far? Who's taken your fancy? Have you seen have you seen a team who've clearly got their ideas in the right place compared to the others? Maybe this is just me not remembering the game as, as cleanly or crisply, crisply as I would have liked to, but Italy, to me, does stand out. Belgium does as well, even though I, I did say I wasn't wholly impressed with their performance, that 3 nothing win over Russia. It looked like, as you said, Ryan, they were in cruise control a little bit in that game. Mm. But Italy win 3-0 and, and really do smother Turkey and, and put consistent attacking pressure on them. Belgium do the same to Russia, essentially, and don't ever really look threatened in that game. I, I think I think those two teams look and stand out to me from the tournament so far. As far as other takeaways... It's been a lot, and I don't know if you guys feel this way too, it's been a lot of ball-dominant teams versus very much not ball-dominant teams. It's been a lot of the pattern that we saw in Turkey, Italy. We saw in Belgium, Russia. We saw it with, with Portugal, Hungary. I mean, it's happened, Spain, Sweden being the most extreme example of that. And in a lot of those circumstances, the ball-dominant team has won through one avenue or another. But then you do look at Sweden a little bit. You look at Slovakia defending a little bit more. I mean, North Macedonia puts up a fight against Austria for a good stretch of that game. Having a solid defensive structure can be the great leveler in a tournament like this. And I think we've seen that so far in this first round of the group stage. Tay-Tay, standout teams for you. Um, I, I think Joe hit a lot of what I would say on on the head. I would say I would put France, Italy, and Belgium in the top, top tier. I would personally probably throw Portugal in there, but uh, for sake of argument, I would say maybe it's those teams, France, Italy, Belgium, as like my top tier, and then maybe Portugal in England, just underneath that. Then I think like there's, there's like the next tier of teams that have been either big teams that have been okay or like less heralded teams that I thought performed really well. I would throw Slovakia in that one. I would throw Sweden in that one and Spain as well. And I agree with everything Joe said about ball-dominant teams. And I think that's where a game like today against uh, with Germany and France, we saw two teams really going at it and trying different things and moving the ball, and, and it was a really fun game to watch, and I'm excited that we're going to get more of those. I do think we're going to get fewer of those defensive teams making it deep into the tournament. Watch Sweden now win the whole thing. Uh-huh. But I go back to the 2018 World Cup and the way Sweden did occasionally get themselves into trouble was by losing some of that discipline, especially later in the group stage. When they're tired, when you don't have that mental sharpness that you need, that's when you do stray out of position. That's when you do miss a pass or miss a header. And I could see them running into some problems there. Whereas the teams that I think have been on the front foot played their game and been pretty unruffled I I would say right now I feel like those top three teams France Italy and Belgium 
I, I would feel very confident if I were them, and I would feel very happy if I were a supporter of any of those teams. I concur with you, Taylor. Graham, your thoughts? Yeah, I, I'm just basically going to repeat a lot of what's been said, or I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll try not to. But yeah, that that first game, I don't think we quite realised at the time how that would set the tone quite as as well as it has. It, it felt like um, there's been a lot of there's there's been a lot of turkeys and there's been a lot of Italys and it, for me Italy have been the best Italy so far and Turkey have been the worst <laughs> Turkey so far and um, sure. yeah that, that that's that's pretty much how I would how I would sum it up the, the team that is most interesting to me and dare I say it as a as a Scot is actually England because obviously you're expecting them to be among those top tier teams and the top tier teams that we expected to perform have really performed you're talking about your Italys your Belgiums your your Francis, I guess Portugal, if we want to put them into the mix. But England, even though they got a good result and I thought they played well against Croatia, it feels like they can improve a lot. So maybe they they can be quietly confident in that teams that win major tournaments tend to start relatively slowly and build into the tournament. But um, I think they're they're a team that you would expect to see more of in, in the tournament. And, and I mean that almost as a compliment because obviously they, they beat Croatia in their first game. So, yeah, I think... I think um, Italy for me are the they, their performance was the the most complete. It was they they completely suffocated Turkey. They were good in attack, midfield, and defence. So they're they're my picks so far. Fair enough. And conversely, gentlemen, uh, the teams who've maybe disappointed us the most, I will uh, highlight one that Graham just mentioned there, Croatia. I think just compared to how how impressive they were a couple of years ago, they just seemed a lot older. They had a lot less ideas against England in that in that opening game as well. Any any uh, any advances on Croatia, Joe? I'm with you. For, does that does the way you phrase that question, Ryan? Does that mean do I have anything else to add? I'm not. I'm not really sure what to do with that. Uh, I'm glad like, you asked that, Joe. Just, just what say does that words mean? about Croatia and other teams who disappointed you, Joe. Perfect. Thank you for spelling it out for me using small words that I can understand. Croatia weren't very good. England were were better in that game. England deserved to win. Croatia have been disappointing. Uh, Poland as well. We, we've mm. kind of joked about this. I guess I'm halfway to becoming a grizzled podcaster because they did kind of let us down in that one-two loss to there Slovakia. They they Let were the cynicism throw, flow they, they through. Were good. <laughs> they really were good at certain things in certain moments in that game. But the red card from Krakowiak midway through the second half made that game really challenging. Made it really hard for them to come back in that game. So I mean, there there have been other teams that haven't looked good, but no two teams I think that have disappointed me more. Gone from expectations being here to expectations being here. I just moved my hand from a higher point <laughs> to a lower point. Um, <laughs> no two teams have done that as much as Croatia and Poland for me. Nothing uh, gets across on a podcast quite like hand gestures, Joe. Thank you very much for that. I, I do I do concur with your two, t- two picks there, Croatia and Poland. Uh, Taylor, what do you think? Uh, I, I concur. I would also emphasize, uh, Joe, I feel you. Uh, there were several points when you were talking earlier that I was just nodding emphatically into the microphone, and I forgot my rule was that I have to say when I'm nodding uh, <laughs> so that people will know. Um, I, I would add one quick thing about like not necessarily a disappointing team, but I would say that I felt like there was a strong possibility that after this France-Germany game, we would know one of these teams was going to be disappointing. I thought there was a chance that France would implode, as we've talked about. I thought there was a chance Germany would do the same thing, and that this really would be the beginning of the end of the end, I guess, of Yogi Lo and Germany in this competition. And I think the way it finished, it could have been 3-0, but it finishes 1-0. I think Germany mm-hmm. can build on that and shouldn't feel too hard hard done by. But I think Por- uh, excuse me, Portugal, uh, France showed no signs of that, and I think they easily could have. And so I would, I would say I think France, again, really impressive. I think we're all being 
very, very gentle because there is a team that we could talk about, but we Uh-oh. don't want to make a co-host sad. <laughs> no, those so guys. instead, I'm not even going to mention them. I'm going to mention a different team and take us in a completely different direction. I would say it, really the team that I have found to be the most disappointing, because I think there are teams that we knew weren't going to be that good. There are some teams that I don't know if they're going to be good, like Croatia or if England just played them exceptionally well. The team that I had high expectations for was Switzerland. I thought the way they took apart the United States was... Like, certainly it wasn't a great performance from the USA, but it was comprehensive, and they looked totally not bothered by anything the U.S. was doing, including high-pressing, including sitting deep, including trying to, like, a mid-block. None of it seemed to work, and I felt like the Swiss were going to come out, destroy Wales, and then we would have this, like, here we go, this is finally the Switzerland we've all been expecting, and instead we got the Switzerland we're sort of used to, and so maybe they do turn it around, but I think for how good they looked against the U.S. and in some other friendlies, I watched some footage of those friendlies I watched... I thought they would be a stronger team and yet that one-to-one draw with Wales. No disrespect to Wales, it was hard fought, but I thought it wasn't as good of a performance as I was expecting from the Swiss. Well, that leads us nicely to Wednesday's action, Tay-Tay, because Switzerland have the big test of facing Italy in Rome. Uh, how do you think that one's going to shake out, Taylor? Uh, I'm I'm really excited. I think it's interesting that we have... Did you say that was at noon or at three? That's the, la- that's the late one, the three. Yeah, that's what I thought, because I feel like tomorrow we sort of start with two of the defensive bunker teams playing against each other. Then at noon we get a little less of that, potentially with Wales-Turkey, and then we get a really, really interesting game at 3 p.m. with Italy-Switzerland. And I think it's going to be fascinating because, based on what we saw from the first games and from our uh, preview research... I think it's going to be similar-ish shapes, and then it's going to be about how the managers, both very experienced, both uh, Mancini a little bit less so, but I think both having been there long enough to know how to make adjustments, how to make the changes they need in-game and just prior to the game to put their team in the strongest position. So the the little adjustments that are made uh, as the game goes, I think will be really fun to try to track and keep an eye on because I think both of those teams could play very well if the Swiss open up and play a bit more attacking. And then if Italy do what we what we expect them to do after that first game, I think that will be a very, very, very fun game to start the second round. Very, very fun indeed. Looking forward to that one. Graham, how about Turkey versus Wales, the middle game on Wednesday in Baku? Friendly confines for Turkey. Yeah. Hmm. I, for, for Wales, I want to, I want to see more pace from them from from Bale's from Bale and I know I was uh, rather disparaging to Dan James earlier but um forget what I said there uh, despite despite what I said <laughs> then I think it could be quite useful to Wales in this game but they need to stretch the the pitch in a way that they they really did against Switzerland to be honest with Turkey I'm, I'm not of all the teams I don't really know what to expect from Turkey because they were they were so poor in that first game but then I felt like as of already said in this podcast I feel like they were pl- they were playing probably the the team that hit the ground running fastest in this tournament so I, I I'm not entirely sure what to expect from from Turkey in this game but I think Wales need to get more out of their key players if they're going to get closer to goal because to be honest I felt they were a little bit lucky against Switzerland to get a point and Joe I'm sorry to tell you you're getting up early again on Wednesday it's Finland <laughs> against Russia is the only one in St Petersburg uh we're in a position where Finland can maybe have six points on the board, virtually guaranteed to go through against a, a Russia side who maybe we left out of the disappointing teams bracket. Yeah, I mean, how exciting is that for Finland, right? Their first game obviously has has extenuating circumstances surrounding that game. 
but they, they come into this game against Russia, and somebody's going to have to create something, right? Finland in the first game had 30% of the ball and one shot on target. Russia in their game against Belgium had 33% possession and one shot on target. So somebody's going to have to do something. I think Finland is is closer to being able to do something than Russia is. They had that goal against Denmark in the second half. Again, giant caveat in that game. But they used the ball effectively in the build-up to that that goal. They, they moved it through midfield well and broke through some lines. I think they have more quality and more some variance in their attack where Russia just bomb the ball up to Zuba every single time, right? And, and they'll do some other things because Russia's going to have more of the ball. But I, I'm excited for this Finland team. I, I think they're going to beat Russia tomorrow, and I think they're going to do some things with the ball that maybe we haven't seen as much just because now they'll finally be up against a team that's going to let them have it a little bit more. Excellent stuff. Looking forward to that one. And maybe you can tell us if Finland and Russia are the same thing. I'm not sure. <laughs> I didn't do geography. Taylor, any more thoughts on those games uh, that are coming out tomorrow? It looks like a good slate. Yeah, I think you just annoyed the entire nation of Finland, so good for you. Um, Yeah, two things there. I think Finland and Turkey, I would say, watch for how they start the game. I think both of those teams need to be really aggressive, especially Finland. I think Russia, in the game against Belgium, obviously it's Belgium, but were made uncomfortable from the start, and that Russia team that I have seen is a team that if they grow into it and get the confidence and start finding Zuba and build around him, can get that confidence, can get that swagger and be really, really difficult. But if you pin them back, if you make them uncomfortable early, you can get chances if you're Finland that I would say that's what they should do. And the same goes for Turkey. I think that they should try to be a little bit more aggressive because I think if you invite Wales onto you and try to counterattack, that can work. But you are then inviting on attacks in a way that certainly didn't work against Italy and Wales are not Italy. But they do have very strong attacking options in areas where Turkey are particularly vulnerable. And I would spotlight the left side for Turkey, the right side for Wales, because Umut Marash is not the most compelling defender, I would say. I think he was like, there was a lot of uncertainty about who would start at left back, and I'm not even sure he will. But the alternative is a like 20-year-old who's played there once for Turkey. So maybe they go with something else entirely, but that would be the side that Gareth Bale would be attacking. And I think if you're Wales really trying to go down that right-hand side and make Turkey uncomfortable, maybe make them try to overload that one side, and then you have space on the opposite for a big switch, or you can find Daniel James in space. I think there will be opportunities for Wales if Turkey aren't aggressive, and I think that's very much the same thing for Russia if Finland sit off. Daniel James in space sounds like a really good concept album that David Bowie would have made. <laughs> I would have listened it's to better that. better than uh, Artem Zuba in space. You don't want to leave him on his own. He does... <laughs> He does bad things, Graham. He does bad things when he's left on his own. <laughs> Speaking of, my final question, not about Artem Zuba's uh, individual proclivities, uh, would be, he is obviously the definition of an absolute unit. And I wanted to go back to, uh, who, who was, who was uh, it's not Shalai, it's Salai uh, yep. for, for Hungary. I'm, I'm nominating him for absolute unit status because he is way bigger than I thought he was, both height-wise, but also like just his sort of build and the way he was kind of standing there jawing with Ruben Dias, yeah. but then battling yeah, we, for everything, holding people off. I, I nominate him, and I'm uh, interested if you all agree or disagree. Does yeah, does he get a plaque, that, Taylor? Do we award them? Like the, I agree with you. Does he does he get anything to actually reward him for that absolute unit status? <laughs> Joe, on your Total Soccer Show resume, you said you had engraving skills, and you said that you oh, could engrave things. Right. And yes, he was going to get a plaque. <laughs> I hope this isn't one of those can definitely ride a horse actory resume sort of things, and it turns out you cannot. 
No, of course, you I'll get that, that in the mail right away. You know the way that uh, Erling Haaland celebrates goals by doing yes. that sort of bear thing? I feel mm-hmm. like that's how Salai runs, and that's yes. how he played the whole game today, was just doing that celebration for 90 minutes. I'm pretty sure there's a superhero somewhere who, like, their power is once they pick up speed, they can't be stopped. They have that, like, I forget what the term is for that energy that just keeps going. I feel like that is also Salai as well, that once you kind of get him up to full speed, you have to sort of put a brick wall in front of him, otherwise he's just going to keep going. And we've reached the material, which means it's time to say goodbye for the day. (laughs) Taylor Rockwell, thank you very much for your time today. You know what? I'm going to bite you, Ryan. How about that? (laughs) Oh, I would like Apparently it's allowed and you don't get suspended, so why not? Bite my shoulder blade, Taylor. Do it good. (laughs) Thank you very much, Joe Lowry. (laughs) You're welcome, Ryan. (laughs) I don't know why I said that. Graham Rutherford, thank you for your time. (laughs) You're welcome, Ryan. I'm off to listen to Daniel James in space. Bye! Bye!